Yes, absolutely. No doubt in my mind. He was a great teacher. He's a great man. He's not the first person to claim to be the son of God. He's not going to be the last mm. person. Did he turn water into wine? I believe that's possible. I, I don't believe any of the miracles in the New Testament actually happened. Bringing a guy back from the dead, probably not. I think he was somebody that was convinced that he was the son of God. Did he think he was the son of God? That's possible as well. Um, was he? No. Not any more than me, anyway, or you. I don't, I don't believe Jesus was any more God than, than man. But who's to say he wasn't crazy? I mean, that's there's, kind of like a, a, very, <laughs> a very fantastical idea of I am the son of God. He could just be this amazing actor that w came up with this idea to be like, I'm going to get all these people to follow, follow me, me and do what I say <laughs> and worship me <laughs> and then and get myself crucified. I think he was a great orator. I think, you know, he had the ability to speak in such a way that it moved people to, to follow him. I love Jesus as a teacher. Um, he brought a lot of light to the world. You know, love your neighbor, turn the other cheek. He is charismatic and he's got so many great things to teach, um, but he is, he's not God. I don't really believe in, you know, the, the resurrection story. Um, as it's told in the Bible, um, you know, w was he crucified? Absolutely. Um, w was he put into this tomb? Did he disappear from the tomb in three days? Absolutely, I believe that. You know, it's, it's a historical account. Um, but the idea that he was dead and went to the gates of hell and took the key and came back to life, I don't really believe in. I, I don't believe that, you know, somebody can come back from the dead if he was truly dead to begin with. You know, there's, there's no evidence or reason for me to believe that he was resurrected or that, you know, he ever actually died. Maybe, you know, his disciples, they claim that he was resurrected, came and took his body from the tomb. Um, but I don't, I don't believe in, like, a divine resurrection. I do need the proof. I, I am the Thomas that needs to stick my hand in his wounds in order to believe that he was crucified and that he came back to life from that crucifixion. I right. can't believe a textbook that has been given to me, you know, 2,000 years after the offense have happened. Right. But if I could sit there and physically, you know, oh my goodness, yes, you were crucified. You did come back. You're in front of me here. That would change everything. If that aspect was, you know, tr proven true, then of course. I think that would change that would change everything. Yeah. I mean, that's the that, proof, that's, right? That's an answer to a question yeah. versus the question. So that would change, you know, my entire idea of what happens to us after death. I've always believed, you know, that you die, you go on the ground, that's the end of the story. Um, but if, you know, he can come back, where does my soul go? Where yeah. does my spirit go after I die? That would change everything. That would change everything. In my opinion, it does. Did you hear it? Did you hear the doubt in the answers that the panelists gave? Welcome to week four of our Room for Doubt series. We're leaning into this in a pretty significant way. I keep saying each week that there is room for doubt. We don't have to run from doubt. Rather, we can run toward doubt. We can even attack it. That's what we're doing in this series. In my opinion, for good questions, there should be, and I believe there are, good answers.
By the way, I was just down on the other end of the building welcoming our preschool families. I'm so glad that you all are with us today. I hope you just make yourselves at home. I should say this as well. Um, the cutest thing that's going to happen on this platform has already happened. So your kids are down, many of them are down on the other end in a much more age-appropriate space and venue. If you still have a kiddo in here, you should know that we're leaning into some pretty big language in here. And if you at any time want to take your kid and head on down there, I give you complete permission. You will not offend me at all. What's happening down on that, that end is incredible for your kids. So the question that we're going after today in a big way is this one. Why do Christians say that Jesus is God's son? Why? I mean, you heard this in the panelists, in the conversation we just listened in on. By the way, I should say this, just like each week, we've got a texting number. Let's put that up on the screen, 317-689-856, or 76, rather. If you have a question on what I'm talking about, or maybe a question that we haven't addressed yet, or maybe a question even coming out of one of the previous week's messages, please text us that. We would love to engage with you on that. We've got a creative idea on how we're going to interact with some of the questions that uh, we haven't yet worked into a message, or maybe we're not going to explore that specific topic in this particular series, but send us the question. We would love to engage you on that. Or small groups are walking through this material together right now as well. Our small group met last Monday night, had an incredible conversation surrounding this topic of doubt, like really cool conversation. I would wish that upon you. Uh, if you would like to be a part of a Room for Doubt group, simply text the word group to that same number. Another resource, if you have yet to go to roomfordoubt.com, do it. There's some great resources there to explore. Okay, let's dive in on this topic of Jesus. Did he claim or didn't he to be the Son of God? There's a book that was released, oh, several years ago, and it got a lot of traction. I want to reference it heavily today, and I want to recommend it to you if you have not yet read the book by Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ. He starts the beginning of that book telling his story in an autobiographical fashion. Actually, let me just let his words speak for themselves. This is his story. He says, for much of my life, I was a skeptic. In fact, I considered myself an atheist. To me, there was far too much evidence that God was merely a product of wishful thinking, of ancient mythology, of primitive superstition. As for Jesus, he continued, didn't you know that he never claimed to be God? Let's pause there just for a second. Lee Strobel is a smart guy a very intelligent man. That is a pervasive myth floating out there in culture. People quote that, even smart people, and re-quote it. It's wrong. We're going to explore that here in just a second. Jesus was a revolutionary, a sage, an, a kind of classic Jew, but was he God? And he goes on to say, no, that thought never occurred to him. I could point to you plenty of university professors who said so. And certainly they can be trusted, couldn't they? 
Let's face it, even a cursory examination of the evidence demonstrates convincingly that Jesus had only been a human being just like you and me, although with very unusual gifts of kindness and wisdom. And he says this, but that's all I ever really had given the evidence, a cursory look. He's conceding a point with that, right? He says, I had read just enough philosophy and history to find support for my skepticism. A fact here, a scientific theory here, maybe a pithy quote there, a clever argument over here. As far as I was concerned, he says, the case was closed. But there was enough proof for me to rest easy with the conclusion that the divinity of Jesus was nothing more than the fanciful invention of superstitious people or so I thought. This begins that best-selling book, The Case for Christ. In it, he tells the story of a two-year journey that he goes on. Here's how it goes. His wife made a decision to follow Jesus. His wife was convinced of the lordship of Christ, and she put her faith in Jesus as her Savior and Jesus as her Lord. Lee Strobel is an investigative journalist, a smart dude, like I said. He goes on a two-year quest to prove that Jesus was not who he said he was. But here's the thing. After two years, he became persuaded that he was wrong, that Jesus is who he says he is. And Lee put his faith in Jesus. By the way, are you convinced of that as well? There are a number of historical facts that can convince us. Maybe you've never believed. Maybe you're here today and you're a skeptic and you have been a skeptic for a very long time. Honestly, there are a lot of times folks will come to church and kind of hang out even here in the church and they wrestle with questions of doubt. As I said earlier, I'm so glad you're here. It's okay to doubt. And there are good answers to good questions. We want to lean well into that today. Here's the thing. I believe that you can become convinced that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that. I'd stake everything on it. Moms and dads of preschool kids here today, I bet you, if you've heard it once, you've heard it a thousand times, maybe a million times, especially once they hit, oh, about three. You hear questions like, what, where? Why? Oh, why is a big one for many three-year-olds. As your kids grow up, parents of teens get these questions as well. I was just telling some of the moms and dads down the hall, uh, we spent a little time together in between the services, and I was telling them that I spent yesterday, my wife Dawn and I, and there was a grandma and grandpa there and some aunts and uncles, we were rooting on one of our kiddos who graduated from college yesterday. I have never been to a, one of those big arena uh, graduations before. I use graduation. There were 10,000 graduates sitting on the football field and a whole bunch of moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas up in the stands rooting them on. I had never experienced that big of a party like that before. We lived in Bloomington for five years, and I couldn't, I just kept flashing back and forth between that little boy sitting down there. He's no longer a little boy, and the time we spent in Bloomington when he was a little boy, even in that football stadium, rooting on the home team. 
I was walking around the campus, and I couldn't help but think about times even when he was a little boy, and I was still a youth pastor, and I was doing trips, and I was going on these excursions with high school kids, and going to other college campuses, and doing week-long conferences together, and I couldn't help but remember a time (laughs) during my season that I served down in Bloomington. One of my high school kids was with me on a trip. His name was Frankie. And we were on this trip, and can I just say this? I won't get into all the details of the story, but the story, the pivotal pieces of the story were a toilet and an M80. Does anybody know what one of those is? An illegal firework that he had walked down the street and purchased. And I'm on the phone with his mom. Frankie's mom was was not somebody to mess with, certainly not Frankie to mess with. And I heard these questions. What's the claim? Uh, what happened? Uh, where's the proof? Because before I take his hide off, I want to make sure that that is, in fact, what we need to be doing here. And why do we care? How is this going to impact him moving forward? Well, it impacted him that he had to come home, right? What's the claim? Where's the proof? Why do we care? This is my outline today as we look at Jesus. The claims that he's made, well, what is that claim? Where is the proof? Why should we care? Here's maybe a way to flesh those same questions out a little bit more. What's the evidence that Jesus really was the Son of God? Is there some evidence for this? What what about this question? Why should anybody believe it? Did he even claim such a thing? If so, can he back it up with some kind of proof? Let's look at that. And why does it matter to us? What's the claim? Where's the proof? Why do we care? Let's start with that first one. What is the claim? Maybe here's a better way to ask the question. Did Jesus really claim to be the Son of God? Well, let's see. Let's look. Let's see what claim he made. As we discovered last week, there are great reasons to trust the Bible. If you didn't, Watch, if you weren't here for the message last week, I would encourage you to go back online and watch it. Here's a passage where Jesus makes a strong truth claim. This is Matthew chapter 16. Jesus, I've stood in the spot where Jesus asked his disciples this question. This is in Caesarea Philippi. He's playing 3D chess with this conversation. There were so many things happening in this moment, in this time, but I want to point this out to you. He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He's referring to himself. Jesus' favorite nickname, if you will, description of himself is the Son of Man. We're going to explore why here in a minute. They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. That's who people are saying, Jesus, they're talking about you. Well, what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter, he was always the teacher's pet. Me, 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 pick on me. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You're the one we've been waiting for, right? Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. By the way, in that moment, he's linking to a truth source. He's linking to Father in heaven, and he's making it very clear here. He's saying, yes, I am the Son of God. I'm affirmed by the Father, God himself. A lot of our friends inside the church, well, might not challenge that claim. We should recognize, though, that there are a lot of people that challenge that claim. 
Muslims, for example, challenge this. According to Islam, Jesus was a prophet, but he never said he was God's son. I would ask, well, what do you do with that passage? Other stories that are included in historical documents, like the Gospel of Matthew that we just read from. People will challenge this in other ways. You actually just heard it by one of the the panelists as they were answering the question asked of them. They said this, of course he was claiming to be the son of God, but we're all children of God, so this is really not a big deal, right? He's saying he's God's son, but you get the idea. I'm God's son as well, so are you. They've missed it. Jesus is making a unique claim about his identity in that conversation we just read in Caesarea Philippi. There are other passages that make this very clear as well. In John chapter 5, we looked at this last week. After healing somebody on the Sabbath day, he gets in trouble for that. People don't deny that he did it, but he did it. Uh, Jesus equated the work he was doing with the work of his heavenly Father. Let's look at this. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, he responds to the religious leaders. They are pushing at him first. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. It's important to understand that these experts, they knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. He was claiming to uniquely be the son of God, that he shared divinity with the father. He's not just an adopted child of God like you and I can become. Then later on in John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus is talking with the Pharisees again, and he's making another bold claim when he says this, I and the Father are one. Now, not to get too much into the weeds here on this Greek word in the original language that it was written, but the word here for one is, it's neuter, it's not masculine. So he was not saying, I and the Father are the same person. Rather, he's saying that he and the Father are of the same nature or essence. And his listeners understood exactly what he was claiming. And in response, they picked up stones to kill him. This is a big deal. They're going to use a B word here. Let's read it. He says, I've shown you so many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? And they answer, we're not stoning you. For any good work, but for blasphemy. You're saying that you're God because you, a mere man, claim to be God. He's making it clear. Jesus had ample opportunity, by the way, to clear up the misunderstanding. I mean, he could have responded with, What? Wait. You think you misheard me? Are you kidding me? Now, I can't claim quality with God. Let me set the record straight for you. He doesn't do that. Rather, he doubles down on his claim. He actually reinforced his claims. He goes on to make sure that they are understanding him correctly, that he was the Son of God, true deity, and equal in nature to God the Father. Let's look at another passage on this topic. This is Mark chapter 14. This is right before his crucifixion. He's on trial. The high priest looks at him and asks him point blank, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Before we crucify you, let's make sure that you are saying what we think you're saying. Jesus replied, I am. Now, to a Greek, 
and Hebrew scholar like the high priest. This is a big deal. Moses, about 1,400 years before this moment, God says, I want you to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses says, well, who do I tell him sent me? And God says, you tell him I am sent you. Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man, again, his favorite nickname for himself, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming down on the clouds of heaven. Now, why does he keep calling himself the Son of Man? A lot of people assume that this is something, he's trying to make some statement about his humanity here. Jesus is fully God and fully man. I don't think that's completely it. He's actually referring back to the Old Testament. He's saying, I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophet Daniel. He predicted me. He said, one like a son of man is going to be presented to the ancient of days. And he says this several hundred years before Jesus quotes that. Daniel chapter 7, let's look at it right now. I kept looking in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. Jesus is connecting himself with that statement. Was coming and he came up to the ancient of days. This is God Almighty himself. And was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, honor, and a kingdom. Jesus is the king. So that all the peoples, nations, and populations of all languages might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The Son of Man figure in this has sovereign power and is worshipped by all the peoples, nations, and men of every language. But only God can legitimately be worshipped, right? So coupling this Son of Man language with the description of his coming on the clouds of heaven, Jesus was clearly claiming that he was the divine person described in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. So get this. Jesus was explicitly identifying himself as the one who would rule forever over all nations, all peoples, over all the world for all time. That is a staggering claim for a human to make. How did they react? Oh, I'm glad you asked. In Mark chapter 14, it says it all, refusing to believe the high priest tore his clothes. This is a sign of extreme grief. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You just heard it come right out of his mouth. You have heard the, there it is again, blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. This statement got Jesus killed. If Jesus were merely claiming to be human, it would not have evoked this kind of reaction. You get the point. Jesus made it clear over and over that he was the unique son of God, God in human flesh. That answers the what question. What was the claim? He's saying, I'm God. What was the second question we were going to wrestle with? Well, where, where is the proof? Maybe here's a better way to ask that question. Did Jesus back up his claim to be the Son of God with some solid evidence? I mean, what kind of evidence exists? And I want to spend some time unpacking this. This is so important because anyone can claim to be God. I mean, I could claim it. You could claim it. Mental hospitals are filled with folks who make that kind of a claim, right? 
I was thinking about this yesterday at that graduation. We spent some time with one of my brothers, and my dad was there. Moms and dads, if you've got kids, you get this. If your child were to claim to be God, <laughs> you'd look at him and say, no, 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 nope, nope. I've seen your sin. About two years old, that started showing up in a big way. No, you're not God. If I claim to be God, I have two brothers and a sister. They would all look at me and laugh out loud. They've got dirt on me. If I ever ran for office, there would be dirt that could come from my siblings. And I bet if you grew up in a family, you have the same story. Jesus. Jesus had a brother that we know well because he wrote one of the books in our New Testament. Get this. Jesus' brother worshipped him. I don't mean by that the way we throw that word around today. I mean like fall on his face flat before him and proclaim him as Lord of his life, that kind of worship. Listen, I love my brothers, but you will never catch me serving or worshiping them. James did that. Actually, when he introduces himself at the beginning of his letter, the book of James in your New Testament, he signs the letter right at the front. That was the custom at the time. He signs his name, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll never catch me referring to one of my brothers as the Lord. You won't catch me worshiping them, but James did. This is a big claim that Jesus is making, that he's the son of God and there is some evidence to back it up. I want to look at some evidences from the historical documents. There is solid evidence to be found there. Here's one of them right here. There's messianic prophecies. Solid evidence. We mentioned this last week that Jesus is the fulfillment of a whole bunch of Old Testament prophecies. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Isaiah chapter 53 describes crucifixion 700 years before Jesus is crucified. Several hundred years before the Persians even invented crucifixion. Describes Jesus as pierced for our iniquities. The book of Psalms describes it a thousand years before. In great detail, hundreds of years before the Persians invented crucifixion. There are a couple of other prophecies that point more specifically, though, to his divine nature. Can I show those to you right now? One of them we look at oftentimes around Christmas time, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Here's the prophecy The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him. Emmanuel. There's a couple of things to point out here. The first is that the virgin birth is foretold. But the second is that the son will be born and you're going to call him Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. Well, when was God with us? You guessed it, when Jesus was here. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, you see a callback to that. This took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And then there's that verse again, a virgin, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Go just a couple of chapters later in Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6. You're going to find this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus' divine nature, Mighty God, was predicted centuries before he arrived on the planet. Messianic prophecies. These would be solid evidence. Let's look at another piece of solid evidence. Jesus lived a sinless life. Again, my siblings have dirt on me. 
James did not have that dirt on Jesus. God is holy. Jesus is God's son. Jesus could prove it by living a life that was completely free from sin. He asked the question. He dared his enemies to prove that he was not, in fact, sinless. Look at this in John chapter 8, verse 46. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? And it's crickets. They couldn't. By contrast, by the way, I can't think of any other religious leader who could even make a claim to be sinless. Muhammad, for example, was very open about his sin nature and his need for God's forgiveness. Check this out. From the Quran, here's a quote right here. So be patient, O Muhammad. Indeed, the promise of Allah is truth. And this is, according to the Quran, God speaking to Muhammad, ask forgiveness for your sin. You have sin, so ask forgiveness for it. Not so with Jesus. Here's some solid evidence. Jesus' miracles. He did a whole bunch of miraculous things. He walked on water. He healed the sick. He raised people even from the dead. Look at this. In John chapter 10, verse 37, he asks the questioner, he says, Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. Look at what I've done. The proof is in the pudding. Look at the miracles that I performed, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Over and over again, Jesus performed miraculous signs. One miracle, though, stands above the rest. In my opinion, it all comes down to, it all hangs on the resurrection There is solid evidence for Jesus' resurrection. And I want to dive into that in a meaningful way right now. Jesus calls the shot. He says it's going to happen. Check this out. Matthew chapter 12, he says, For as Jonah was there three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man, again, he's describing himself, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. But I'm coming back. His early followers recognized that the resurrection was a big deal. Paul, for example, says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. And you're still stuck in your sins. His resurrection is a big deal. It is the ball game, the whole ball game, so to speak. So what is the evidence? What is the evidence of his resurrection? I'm glad you asked. I've got three E's to match evidence. Let's look at these three E's. These are pulled from the teacher, Gary Habermas, and these are pretty important. You might even want to take notes and write these down. Number one, Jesus' tomb was empty. It was empty. We have historical documents that reference this over and over again. The disciples of Jesus universally testified that the tomb was empty. They were bewildered at first. They couldn't fully grasp it at first. But nobody, not even the disciples' enemies, disputed the fact that the tomb was empty. They acknowledged it as true. 
Instead, the religious authorities, they made up a story. They bribed the guards. They coached them to lie. Let me show you the story. Let me show you the lie. This is Matthew 28. His disciples, this was the the religious authorities they're coaching. His disciples came during the night. They're telling the guards, this is what you're going to tell people when they ask. And they stole him away, here's the lie, while we were asleep. If you reflect on this story for a minute, you'll recognize how ridiculous this was. If the guards had been asleep, they wouldn't have had any idea what happened to the body, right? But on the other hand, if they had been awake and they caught the disciples stealing the body, then they, of course, would have stopped and arrested them. Clearly, this is a cover story designed to mask what really happened. But it does one significant thing, right? It acknowledges that the tomb of Jesus was, in fact, empty. And the religious leaders, they didn't have any way to explain that. There's no good reason, I should add, for saying that anybody stole or moved Jesus' body. Because the Romans were the ones that crucified him. They certainly wouldn't want to make it look like he had risen. The religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, they wanted Jesus dead in the first place. We just read that a bit ago. And they wanted him to stay dead. And if there was a body to be found, you better believe that they would have put that body on the display to quash the movement that was threatening their authority. Well, that leaves us with the disciples. Did they move the body? Well, the fact is they were terrified. They were disillusioned. They were hiding in a room, we read. They were grief-stricken. Peter especially is filled with shame and regret. The disciples had neither the motivation, the will, or the means to overcome the guards and steal Jesus' body. That just doesn't make sense. The second E. The risen Jesus was seen by a whole bunch of eyewitnesses. I mean, they saw the risen Jesus, they talked to him, they even ate with him. Look what a couple of scholars say in the case, the book, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. They say friends as well as foes saw Jesus not once but many times over a period of 40 days. We're told that these numbers included both men and women. The evidence is broad. Hard-hearted Peter and soft-hearted Mary Magdalene included. It happened in all kinds of locations, indoors and outdoors, and so on. Let's not forget that some of them were skeptics to begin with. People like Doubting Thomas. He was referenced in the interview we, we watched just a bit ago. I need to See, Jesus, I need to put my hands in the nail holes and in his side where the spirit went in. Well, when this happens, Thomas, the skeptic, doubting Thomas, who represents, I'm sure, a whole bunch of us, he sees Jesus and he exclaimed, my Lord and my God. He sees, he's convinced, and he believes. As a matter of fact, the New Testament describes at least nine different appearances of the risen Jesus over a period of 40 days. We can believe the testimony of these eyewitnesses of Jesus and his resurrection. The 30. Jesus' tomb was empty. He was seen by a whole bunch of eyewitnesses. And the accounts, the stories that get told then of Jesus' resurrection happened early. And I might add, often, like really early, like within a few months early. Actually, I hinted at this last week. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
beginning with verse 3, where the Apostle Paul is quoting an early church creed. This is like language that got repeated over and over and over again, like a song we would sing today describing the truth of who Jesus is. This was written within months of Jesus' resurrection. This is what it says. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And then you know this because you recite this in your worship assemblies that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters in the, at the same time, most of whom are still living. You can go talk to Bob. He saw Jesus raised from the dead. Though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James. We just talked about James, the brother of Jesus. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Paul is saying, I even saw Jesus myself miraculously on the road to Damascus. The New Testament scholar James Dunn puts it this way. This tradition, we can be entirely confident, was formulated as tradition within months of Jesus' death. The author of The Case for Christ, we keep talking about Lee Strobel, he put this this way. That's, that's historical gold. What were our three questions? What? Where? How about number three? Why? Why do we care? Maybe Better put, why should Jesus claim to be the Son of God matter to us today? Well, because quite honestly, it changes everything. If Jesus died, was buried, raised from the grave, and in that single greatest moment of human history, he beats the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell, this changes everything for me, and I would suggest for you as well. At the end of his study, Lee Strobel looked at all of the evidence for and against. And this is what he said happened inside his heart. He decided it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a follower of Jesus. He tells that story in the book, The Case for Christ. Again, if you haven't read it, I would encourage you to read it. Let me share with you. These are the implications that he said, if that's true, you need to acknowledge this in your own life. This is the so what. First of all, his teachings, Jesus, are divine insights, not just good ideas. This changes everything. If Jesus is the Son of God, his teachings are more than just good ideas from a wise teacher. They're divine insights. I can place my whole life on them. I can build my life, and so can you, on those insights. Number two. He offers an unwavering foundation for our moral decisions. If Jesus sets the standard for morality, I can now have an unwavering foundation to build my life on. I couldn't help but think about that yesterday at that graduation. 10,000 students. A couple of them I noticed, the cameras went in on the back of their cap, had a Bible verse written on it. And I just wondered, how many of these students are building the foundation of their life on truth? Because life is getting ready to happen in a big way. 
it probably already has. And they lean into what the future holds. What foundation have they built their life on and are they building today? 10,000 fresh and shiny graduates, I would ask you the same question. Number three, he is alive and he's still accessible because life does, in fact, happen. If Jesus rose from the dead, he's alive today and he's available for me to encounter on a daily basis and he is for you as well. Number four, he opens the death or the door, rather, to eternal life. If Jesus conquered death, he can open the door for eternal life for me and he can open it for you as well. Number five, he supernaturally helps us because life does, in fact, happen. He has divine power. Number six, he can encourage us in our turbulent world, and it is turbulent, is it not? Number seven, he has your best interests at heart. If Jesus loves me as he says he does, he has my best interests at heart, and I believe he has that for you as well. Which leaves me with number eight. Because of that, he deserves your allegiance, your obedience, even your worship. If Jesus is who he claims to be, then as my creator, he deserves allegiance, obedience, and worship. We're going to end our sermon time today with a response doing exactly that. I started this sermon series several weeks ago with a story I talked about how I look around at the world around me, and I see evidence of God everywhere, intelligent design. Oh, my goodness, I see a creator in his creation. And I use this phrase, I'm no legal expert, but as I understand it, the burden of proof is always on the prosecution. We're presumed innocent till proven guilty, Right? I wish Christians, I wish we would approach this with a little bit more confidence sometimes. We feel like it's our burden to prove the existence of God, but I would submit, look around you. The evidences of God are everywhere you look. I think the burden of proof is on the prosecution for the devil as he's whispering doubt into my ear. Well, you prove to me that God doesn't exist. The burden of proof is always on the prosecution as I've been studying for these messages, I keep thinking about places that I've stood where I've encountered the location where the historical Jesus was documented to be. Let me show you just a few. These are, well, these are my feet. Standing, the pool of Siloam. Jesus healed a blind man here. They uncovered this just a few years ago. This is the same pool of Siloam over here. I've stood there. Jesus was there. The historical Jesus was there. These are the southern steps of the temple. And I'm sitting there on those steps where Jesus, the Bible says, as a 12-year-old, taught the religious leaders. He did the same as a master teacher rabbi in his 30s. I've stood there. I've sat there. Jesus was there. Places like Capernaum. This is Peter's house. Jesus slept there. This is the synagogue in Capernaum. Jesus taught there. This is a stone's throw. You could pick up a rock and hit this from there. Jesus did all kinds of amazing things there. Historically, it's documented. This is Nazareth. It's called Mount Precipice. I don't know what I'm doing in that picture. Probably trying to freak somebody out that was with us. I think about Nazareth. I think about the little boy, Jesus. I think about Mary shooing him out of the house to go play. Where would I have gone if I were the little boy? I probably would have gone and scampered on those rocks right there just like that. 
It grows my faith to think about I've been able to be there in those spaces where Jesus, the historical Jesus, documented was. But I've lived my life now for 48 years. I choose to live with the presupposition that Jesus is. He is. Period. What's the claim? He's God. Where's the proof? Oh, it's all over the historical records, all over the historical documents. But for 48 years, I've looked around and I've watched the church be the church and I've watched people who follow hard after Jesus. I see the evidence of Jesus over and over and over again in my life. Why do we care? Because if he is who he says he is, we have to lean into that as truth. And it changes even the way we live. I'm going to invite the worship team to come out here. They're going to lead us in worship as they do. Can I simply remind you, there are some great next steps. Join us next week. We're going to lean in on a great question next week. You could text group to that number to join. You could text your questions to that same number. There's room for doubt. Make sure you hit that website and do some more research, some more exploration. I want to respond. We've been talking about Jesus Right now, could we simply talk to him? Would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? Let's go to God in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for this moment. We thank you for truth. We thank you for historical evidence. We thank you that you are. The burden of proof is on the prosecution. It's up to us to respond in faith. And so now, as we acknowledge the truth of who you are, what you've done, and what you continue to do in our lives, we simply worship you. And it's in your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.